Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today, I have a, a dear friend on the show and a guy who has absolutely changed my life. This is the man who, going back about 25 years ago, showed me that I didn't have a moral failing, a willpower problem, or some sort of uh, personal weakness that I had a hardware problem in my brain. A guy who has relentlessly said something that seems really obvious now that maybe we should look at the brain in order to see what's going on in there instead of just blaming people for the things they're doing that are driven by their biology. And if you're a longtime listener, he's been on the show a couple times. He's written only 30 books, a physician, a double board certified psychiatrist, professor, been in the New York Times list a dozen times. I'm talking about none other than Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, welcome back to the show, my friend. Hi, Dave. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I uh, I was so impressed the first time I, I got to meet you in person because I had, I had so many changes in my life from using your work and understanding, oh, look, I have parts of my brain that don't have any metabolic activity. <laughs> Uh, because of my exposure to toxic mold and eating the wrong stuff and all of that. And it was, I think, one of your very first books, uh, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life, that really uh, just set a lot of what became the neurological side of biohacking in motion for me. And uh, we get to talk today about your newest book, talking about dragons in the brain called Your Brain is Always Listening. So it, it's always an honor to see you. I love that we can just you know hang out and talk whenever we get a chance. And all this COVID nonsense has uh, made it difficult to connect in person the way we have most years before this. So good to see you, my friend. Well, thank you so much. I have great affection for you and for your work. And I love watching you help people have better brains and better lives. And, you know, most people don't think of the brain as an organ, uh, that if you really want a mind that works right, you got to get the hardware to work right. And that means your mitochondria have to work right. And your gut have to work right. And you need to eat the right food and get the right nutrients. And you've really taken that concept and brought it to the world in just such a fun, fascinating, scientific way. Well, I can tell you 100% I would not have graduated from Warden and I wouldn't have written any of my books if you hadn't have done what you did earlier in your career. So my eternal gratitude. And you're you're always at the, the cutting edge and you have um, about nine clinics now. You've done 170,000 spec scans of people's brains. So you have more data than anyone else that is informing your books. So it's like a sustained, ongoing uh, learning process for you. And I was intrigued by uh, your brain is always listening because you talk about hidden dragons that control your happiness. And you haven't brought dragons up in your books before. So tell me, what is a dragon? So a dragon is an issue you're dealing with that your brain is listening to, but it's not helping you. I had my friend Sharon May on our podcast, and she talked about the dragons from the past that breathe fire on your emotional brain and how it ruins relationships. And so I started playing with the idea with my patients. And the new book is actually divided into five sections. 
the first section is the dragons from the past, and there's 13 of them. Um, and the pandemic is just making this dragon thunder go crazy. There's the anxious dragon, the death dragon, the grief and loss dragon. And these are really sort of the big psychological issues people deal with. Uh, my favorite dragon I actually have with me uh, is called the ancestral dragon. And the ancestral dragon, the issues aren't yours, that they belong to your mother or your grandfather. Yes. It's actually written into your genetic code, this process of epigenetics, where if she had post-traumatic stress disorder, well, you are more likely to have post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's not yours to own. It's yours to fix, but not to own. And then my dragon, um, and people can know about which dragons they have. We have a cute quiz called knowyourdragons.com, um, is the abandoned, invisible, and insignificant dragon. Because I'm one of seven children. I was third, completely not special. And in a Lebanese family, the oldest son is the golden child. And right. the rest of the boys sort of don't matter. And... You know, when I look back on my life, that has fueled a lot of really good things for me, seeking significance, but bad things, too, where I can get disappointed easily and um, just feel off. And so in the book, in the first part, I teach you what are the dragon origin stories? How do they um, get triggered? How do you react? And how to tame them? I even have a fun section on what movies they like. So wow. the abandoned, invisible, or insignificant dragon love underdog movies. Like I've like seen Braveheart the first Rocky like 12 times. Uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and it's, that, that feeling of not being good enough, identifying it as a dragon is really cool because so many people deal with that. I certainly dealt with that. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are trying to prove they're good enough. Like I finally hit a hundred million dollars. Now I'm good enough. And they hit it. Like I'm still not good enough. And you know, no amount of success ever seems to feed the dragon or, or to make it shut up maybe more accurately. So what's the secret? Let's say that someone's dealing with that dragon, the insignificance one. It's you to find community and connection. That's and significance. So what is it I can do today to be helpful to someone else? And it, Service it just, feeds, it soothes this dragon when you're connected. So, you know, I worked with Mark Hyman and we created the Daniel plan with Pastor Rick Warren. And such a big thing. We had thousands of churches around the world. And I, I just felt like I was in the center of my purpose. And the, the dragon just was sort of at bay for there. But you're right, if you're not careful because of how dopamine works, is more isn't better. More just creates a need for more. And so learning to be grateful for what you have. And, um, you know, at this point of my career, getting to talk to you, it's never competition. It's how can I just appreciate the fact I get to hang out with you? And that means that dragon is better. Now, the next dragon, okay. they sort of go together, is the inferior and flawed dragon. 
it's where mm, you, I certainly had I had both of those, by the way. So let's talk about that one. Yeah, you compare yourself in a negative way to others, and this is the one that's driving the epidemic of teenage suicide because of social media. As people scroll, I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not enough. And uh, it's so devastating. I mean, it really can drive uh, depression and hopelessness. And we have to be very careful uh, because social media is really built to get eyeballs for advertisers. It's not built for your mental health. It definitely doesn't even measure your mental health because if they measured it, they would see what they were doing and then they'd be liable for it. So there's a built-in never look there just in the in the business itself. Same reason that, you know, Big Tobacco says, uh, you know, we're not going to do studies on health because that would be wrong. And same reason Monsanto, of course, we're not going to do health studies unless they're ones that prove that it's safe, <laughs> despite all of the other evidence that it's not. So that kind of willful blindness gets built into businesses. So then, you know, your kids are using social media and yeah, they're getting that dragon maybe installed um, unintentionally, but it's, it's happening. So if the first one of the dragons we talked about here, you use gratitude and service to others. And by the way, I think gratitude is the most important and cheapest biohack on par with even intermittent fasting, where just the return on something that's free is so high. What do you do if you're, you've got the I am not enough dragon? So it's know when you're comparing and stop it. Because if you keep it up, it, it's funny. Unhappiness. When they ask the richest people in the world, what would it take to make them perfectly happy? They needed 10 times of what they had in order, so it's like whether you had $500,000 or $5 million or $500 million, you needed 10 times that to be happy, which means, of course, you'll never be happy. So it's also remembering this rule. It's called the 1840-60 rule that says when you're 18, you worry about what everybody's thinking of you. And when you're 40, you don't care what anybody thinks about you. And when you're 60, you realize no one has been thinking about you at all. People spend their days worrying and thinking about themselves, not you. And so if you talk to your younger self, most people, when they talk to their younger selves, go, you know, so many cool things are ahead for you if you just keep doing the right things, if you just keep making the right decisions. And there's this great exercise I love called give your mind a name. And it's based on a psychological concept called psychological distancing. You are not your mind. Your mind is a creation of the physical functioning, the anatomy and the physiology of your brain. And if you can just separate a little bit, you feel so much better. And so when I learned about that, I'm like, well, what would I name my mind? <laughs> and so I named my mind Hermie. When I was young, when I was a teenager, I had a pet raccoon. So I went to the pet store because I had a 
German Shepherd dog to get him a leash. And this little thing is crawling up the back of my leg. And it's like crossed my belt and up to my shoulder, starts playing with my hair. And so I grabbed it. And it's a baby raccoon, which at the time, wow. in, it was like 1969, you could still buy them in pet stores. And she was so stinking cute. I had to have her. And she talked nonstop. Um, I had no idea what she was saying. And she was a little troublemaker. Um, <laughs> she she TP'd my mother's bathroom once. She'd repeatedly flush the toilet. She ate my sister's fish out of the aquarium. That was a bad day. And that's what my mind does. My mind is like a troublemaker. It'll like just hold up signs on how you failed or this bad thing is going to happen. And so once I gave my mind a name, I like don't have to listen to her, that I can go put her in the cage. And it's like, do I need this thought? Does this thought serve me? Or does this thought Or is it even true? Hurt me? Yeah. Or is it true? There's a whole section in the book on ants, which is automatic negative thoughts, because the more ants you have, the more the dragons get out of control. And so I have this process I learned from my friend Byron Katie on how to kill the ants. Just so powerful. You talk to these exceptionally wealthy people, and they say, I'll be happy when I have X amount of money. When I was young, I actually worked in an auto parts warehouse for five years, putting you know coil springs in boxes and just you know terrible mind-numbing work. And I was absolutely convinced I'll be happy when I have money. So I'm 26 and I make six million dollars. And what you're saying is very true because I looked at another friend who at a company that just went public and we all made more money than than we knew what to do with. And I said, you know, I'll be happy when I have $10 million. And here I am, you know, if you have $5 million, especially these were 1990s dollars, which is like 15 million now, um, I was set for life, right? But I couldn't see it. And then I lost all of that money two years later, right? Which created more suffering, but the money itself didn't create happiness at all. And the same thing people are saying, no, when I get money, I'll be happy. Or when I'm famous, I'll be happy. And I had an experience even before that where, you know, I'm 23 I sold the first thing ever sold over the internet and I'm in entrepreneur magazine as a 23 year old. And you know, there's a full page picture of me in a, you know, double extra large t-shirt. And I was happy for like 15 minutes. Right. And that's like, man, this didn't work. Like all the things I thought would make me happy, you know, fame and money. I tried them both and they were not creators of that at all, but it, it doesn't sound like it's possible. So if you're listening to this going, you know, how could anyone with that much money not be happy? The vast majority of people with money who I know are struggling greatly because now they still have all their unhappiness they had before, and now they're worried about losing what they have. So it's it's a really interesting psychological trap we get into, the all be happy win trap, and you've identified that really elegantly in the book. Well, the book actually starts with a conversation between Miley Cyrus and I, and it came, she went public last year that I've been her doctor for about 10 years. And um, it's March 16th, the pandemic has started, and she, like so many other people, is freaking out. You know, how long is the virus going to live on packages? Are young people going to die? Am I going to lose my grandmother? 
And she called me on a Sunday night. And as I walked her back from the ledge, we tamed the anxious dragon, which is the most common of all of the dragons, and the death dragon. Um, she invited me to do it on her social media platform. She has 105 million fans on Instagram. And it's really possible um, to tame these dragons. And, you know, I'm just so proud of her because she took the anxiety and became purposeful and subsequently has done pretty good during the pandemic. When money is involved in happiness up to $75,000 a year. Yeah. After that, there's no relationship to money and happiness. And in fact, fame wears out the pleasure centers of your brain. And uh, I'm in a new docuseries with Justin Bieber called Seasons. And I've been his doctor for a long time. You just see what happens. They get famous. It hits the pleasure centers. They love it. It happens again and again. And then it doesn't do anything for them. Just like cocaine, they begin to chase the feeling to get rid of the sadness. And in him, I mean, everybody knows the story about the drugs and the bad behavior and on and on. But you have to literally, if you're famous or wealthy, rebuild your pleasure centers so that holding your wife's hand makes you happy that playing with your grandkids makes you happy. And there are ways to do that. Um, when I talk about the hopeless and helpless dragon, another very common one during the pandemic, you know, Dave, at the beginning of the pandemic, depression was 8% of the population, which was up from where it had been two decades earlier. It's usually around 6%. But now our society is not doing as well. Suicide is up 33% before the pandemic. But from March of 2020 to August, it went from 8% to 28%. And That's unbelievable. So how do you manage the hopeless and helpless dragon? So I do something called positivity bias training, where you really can guide your mind to look for what's right rather than what's wrong. So I start every day with today is going to be a great day. It's actually on the top of my to-do list. Uh, now, as soon as my feet hit the floor, I do it because it's just a habit now. Um, and that means I'm just looking forward to what's happening. What's, what are going to be the good parts of my day? I get to spend an hour with you. That makes me happy always. Um, and then when I go to bed at night, I say a prayer and I go, what went well today? And it's like a little treasure hunt. And I look for even the micro moments. What are the smallest things that happened today that just made me happy? And it sets your dreams up to be more positive. And let me show you how practical this can be. Um, both my mom and dad got COVID. And um, they were on the front page of the Orange County Register because five days later, they went out of the hospital and they went home. And my mom just got better, but my dad really didn't get better. He ended up with what we're now calling long COVID. And mm -hmm. he was sleeping 16 hours a day. I was really worried about him. And on May 5th, I'm 
in my bathroom getting ready to take him to the pulmonologist and my mom calls in a panic because my dad had stopped breathing. And I called 911. I live four miles from them, raced over there, and I'm watching the paramedics do CPR on him. And we lost him that day. And I was really sad. And uh, when I went to bed that night, because it's my habit, I said a prayer and I went, what went well today? And then I stopped. And I'm like, seriously, we're going to do this today? Like the worst day of my life since the day my grandfather Mm -hmm. died 40 years earlier. And But then my mind just went to this really cool interaction between my mother and the police officer. And for the last year, I've been doing a project with the Newport Beach Police Department on creating a brain-healthy police department. You know how important that is. Yeah, big deal. One of my students is the officer on the scene. And he's like, Mrs. Amen, I'm sorry. We have to do an investigation when anyone dies at home. And she looked at the police officer and she said, do you think I'm having an affair? Do you think I had him (laughs) murdered? (laughs) Your mom sounds like she's full of that. (laughs) And she was kidding. But to just have some levity in tragedy. Uh And then I remembered the hundreds of texts I got from my friends that day. And before the coroner took him away, I just sat with him and held his hand. And I just remember how soft his hands were. And then I went right to sleep. And these little habits are so helpful if you can make them part of your everyday life. You literally can train your brain. And when you do, your life is happier. It is profoundly interesting to me. I mean, you know, I, I do my, very different than stuff you do, my 40 years of Zen work, which is centered around forgiveness and EEG neurofeedback and all. Um, so I, I'm pretty darn aware of how the brain can tell you stories and can help you erase things to think about. So I have a similar practice and I loved it in your book uh, where, you know, when I, before I go to bed at night, I kind of review my wins for the day. And this comes from uh, Dr. Barry Morgulon's work, who's been a guest on the show a couple of times. He's kind of a, a real life Dr. Strange. He studied, he's a, a UCLA doctor, surgeon who studied in remote monasteries in uh, the middle of nowhere in China. And so I, I do work with him. And um, he said, Dave, don't just review it at the end of the day. Every time you have a win during the day, write it down. And what I discovered, and I want you to tell me why this is happening. Um, what I discovered is that if I write down little wins, oh, that, oh, that's awesome. That went really well. And, and then at the end of the day, I have this long list of amazing stuff that happened. But if I wait till the end of the day, it, my brain's erasing them. And the thing that made this so clear to me, so my, my book just came out recently as well, um, uh, Fast This Way. It hits the New York Times for the second week. Okay, this is a big thing as an author. You know, every week you get it, you're like, wow, that's amazing. You know what I'm talking about. So into the day, I'm going through my wins. And I had I, w- I wasn't practicing the writing them down every day. I was just practicing just reviewing. And I had forgotten that I just got a, the notification that morning that I hit the, the list for the second week in a row. Like that, that's a, a huge win. 
what is the part of the brain, what is the process that makes you forget all the good stuff that happens before the end of the day? Well, it gets crowded out by the noise and the nonsense that interrupts your hippocampus that gets memory into long-term storage. And your hippocampus is so important. Uh, that's, That's why I say it's like a treasure hunt. And that goes with another concept I talk about called micro moments. It's look for the smallest things that make you happy. Yeah. I just posted a video on my Instagram um, at Doc Amen and on the world's um, the most delicious brain healthy chocolate. And because my grandfather, who I loved, was a candy maker and um, we actually make brain healthy chocolate bars. And uh, I figured out how to make really healthy, low-calorie hot chocolate that's delicious. And uh, whenever I take the first sip, it makes me happy. And so just remembering those little tiny moments or learning how when I look in Tana's eyes to just enjoy it and be happy about it or hold her hand or rub her feet. Or, um, you, you don't have to have the big moments because happiness is actually what you were talking about, that string of little moments. And yes, the big moments like the list is awesome, but you have to be careful with it because if it doesn't make the list, it's still important work that will impact thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people's lives. And it's a trap because, you know, I've had 12 books make the list, one of them for 40 weeks. And so if the other one only goes 12, does that mean I'm a failure? It's like, well, that's ridiculous, (laughs) right? It's ridiculous (laughs) (laughs) that am I writing for my ego or am I writing to be purposeful Mm -hmm. and to be helpful yeah to make it and yeah sometimes it's to feed the insignificant dragon or the inferior dragon it's like well but that book sold for eight years so obviously you're not as good there's always somebody who's done things better and longer and there's always people who haven't come close to what you've done it's where you look that determines how you feel I had uh, Robert Green on the show a little while ago. He's one of my favorite authors. And he wrote The Laws of Human Nature recently. And in it, he talks about envy as the scariest and hardest to detect emotion in yourself. Like, like Envy is designed to be secret. So you don't even know you're feeling envy towards others. And it feels like a lot of the, the or at least some of the dragons that are formed by social media and by a lot of these things, almost like what you described. Well, I was only on the list for 12 weeks. That other guy was on for 40 weeks. That it is envy. What does envy do to the brain? How do we see it? You know, it's actually it's a really interesting concept. And one of the things I write about is oxytocin, which um, people think it is a good thing. You know, it's the cuddle hormone. It helps babies be born. It drops mother's milk. And um, it's not always a good thing because what Do tell. oxytocin does is makes you bond to your group. But often then 
to get pleasure out of pain of the other group. And so there's some research to say it actually may be involved in racism. And yes, I'm really connected to my group, but then I am afraid and will shun or even laugh at the um, troubles of other people. So it's so shadow not nest comes from oxytocin. From oxytocin, it's really wow. interesting. So you think of mama okay. bear aggression, and initially, you know, I, I was talking to Tana about oxytocin, and she goes, "That's a double-edged sword because mama bear aggression means other people can get hurt, and that's what happens." So we have to be careful about spraying oxytocin in the group. That. That's profound, uh, but it makes so much sense. So if it's what drives you know, tribal cohesion, well, tribes go to war with other tribes too. I never even thought of that. All right, I'm gonna have to have Dr. Love back on, uh, uh, Paul Zak, who's the oxytocin's biggest fan. Very interesting, wow. But isn't it also sort of the happiness hormone? I mean, if you don't have enough oxytocin, you're generally not very happy. So there's a group of hormones that are involved in happiness. Uh, dopamine. People usually think of that, but oxytocin for relationships, serotonin for respect. Uh, serotonin is the hormone of respect, but it's also an antidepressant. Um, GABA, which settles down the overfiring of cortisol. Mm. Um, but I've learned during the pandemic, you need cortisol. Uh, cortisol is an anti-inflammatory. Yeah. And people, for example, who have Addison's disease where they don't make any cortisol because their adrenal glands got hurt, um, they're, they're not managing the pandemic well at all. I, I don't make enough cortisol. I've been low cortisol since I was a kid. It's a genetic thing. And I will tell you, I'd rather have hard cortisol than low cortisol. Neither one's good. But low cortisol is horribly destructive. And uh, so I've been managing my cortisol with bioidentical stuff for years. And I'm so happy you said that <laughs> because the idea I'm just going to crush my cortisol, you don't want to do that. You want to keep it right where it should be. Right. And it's about balance. So too much dopamine yeah. uh, wears out your nucleus accumbens. You don't want to wear it. You want to protect your nucleus accumbens. It's the little pleasure buttons in your brain. And if you wear them out, you're depressed. And you're also overweight, which I thought is really interesting. People who are overweight have less reactive uh, activity in the nucleus accumbens. So they want to go after that sort of really delicious but not good for you food just to feel something, which just goes again to you have to protect your brain. And uh, there's a section in the book I know you'll like called the scheming dragons. So these are the dragons mm -hmm. that are stealing our mind, the food pusher dragons. I mean, every time you turn on the TV and you see a commercial for Jack of the Box or McDonald's or Carl's Jr.'s, I mean, these like what looks like delicious sandwiches that will just kill you early. And then they put them with half-naked women like Charlotte McKinney, who's just stunningly beautiful. And it's like, oh, if I eat this sandwich, she'll want me. It's like, no, she's not going to I want thought, you. I thought she eats that every day to get that body. Isn't that how it works? <laughs> yeah, it's just the lie that, you know, we're insidiously fed. 
And then there's the toxin pushers. And I'm really worried about all the disinfectants because, you know, initially it's like disinfect, disinfect. It's like, well, when you put solvents on your hand, it takes um, the fat uh, layer and the microbiome that's already there and it damages the microbiome on your skin, which very few people ever think about. Um, and yes, you should be hygienic, but you have to be careful. It increases permeability of your skin. So you get BPA and other things through, and you're more likely to get food allergies when your skin barrier is, is penetrated. So I'm not a fan of those, those things. It's a, it's a poor strategy and it flies in the face of everything we know about having healthy bacteria in the world around you. And whatever goes on your skin goes in your body. Um, Mm -hmm. there's also the contact sports dragon, which is, we think, you know, we just came out of the Super Bowl that, oh, this is really good for us. And in fact, there's more brain damage from contact sports. I mean, I'm a huge fan of exercise, tennis, table tennis and dancing and golf, but I'm not a fan at all to let children hit soccer balls with their head. The dragon tamer is your prefrontal cortex, the front third of your brain, largest in humans and any other animal. And it helps you with focus and forethought and judgment. And the dragon tamer or your prefrontal cortex, there's always this dynamic tension with your limbic or your emotional brain. And you damage your prefrontal cortex, your emotional brain will rule your life as it does. So you can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have a dragon tamer, your decisions won't be good. You'll end up being married 16 times and you won't be happy. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD+, levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. About five years ago, um, I, I had a, a really significant a traumatic brain injury. I took a, a knee to the head at high speed. Um, the kind where you know you can't look at lights and you're dizzy and nauseous, and I had amnesia, uh, you know, a, a pretty meaningful one. And I'm fortunate that I have good care, and I, you know, I, I know all the stuff to do and all that. Um, but for the first two months after that, I couldn't play go fish with my kids, um, just because my working memory wasn't there. And I remember I sent this super angry email to Tim Ferriss um, for nothing that he'd actually done. Because <laughs> like, like your emotional regulation, I, I apologize later. I'm like, Tim, I'm really sorry, man. I, I didn't mean that. Uh, I had a brain injury. Uh, but I did you know, all the nutritional stuff to turn off inflammation. I did uh, neurofeedback and restored my brain back to working the way it's supposed to work. Um, but if I hadn't had that, 
I would have been the worst father, right? Because I would have yelled at my kids all the time. Uh, and I know I was swearing way more than, than I normally do. And um, I, I was, you know, really out of kind of out of place, out of sorts. And so many people have this and they don't know. And it, and it wrecks their relationships. It wrecks everything. And calling that out as a dragon, it's, it's such a big thing. And I, I love it that you're able to do that, not just as a you know, behavior thing, but hey, look at the brain. You can see this part of the brain had a problem from even that soccer ball. And so you've been, I would say, the leading voice uh, talking about, hey, hitting yourself in the head has long-term effects uh, that are that no one knows just because you have 170,000 brain scans to do that. So I hope you keep talking about that forever. And my kids are not allowed to head a soccer ball ever, even though I did it when I was a kid. Yeah. And so if you know better, hopefully you do better. And it's a major cause of psychiatric problems and nobody knows about it because they don't look. And uh, 40% of our patients have a significant brain injury at some point in the past. And we find you have to ask them 10 times whether or not you had a brain injury. And if you don't look, how, how would you ever really know if it was lasting? Is it really only 40%? Because we find it at 40 years of Zen, and we're getting successful people there, entrepreneurs and celebrities and people. But just looking at a, a quantitative EEG, something like 80, 90%, like it looks electrical, like did you, maybe not a hard hit, but did you ever hit your head? Same thing, you ask them 10 times and, oh yeah, I was unconscious. Well, there you go. But there's like these electrical echoes that look like they could be. So it feels like the number might be higher than 40. Are you being conservative? Yes, um, because I mean, all, all of us have hit our head at some point is, yeah. does it last? And if we see it on a scan, we'll find it in your history. Yeah, I, I believe that. And it's, it's one of those things you're walking around, you're doing your best to show up in the world and you've got all these dragons going on. And some of them are, you know, it's a hardware thing. Like you hit the head and some of these food things you talked about. But then knowing at the same time, oh, there's also an ancestral dragon. And during the, the pandemic, you talked about anxiety and then grief and loss, which you dealt with with the pandemic. And anxiety is coming from our societal response to it. And then grief and loss is coming because some people do pass, right? Uh, like your Like your father did. You talked about your process for grief and loss. Are there things that people should know um, beyond what you did to tame the grief and loss dragon? Well, I always say s start healing immediately. That if you broke your arm, that you wouldn't wait to heal. Because a lot of people go, oh, well, six months from now, you know, maybe you should deal with this. It's like, no, you should start dealing with it today. I started listening to his voicemails that night and for the next couple of weeks and cried like a baby. Because I knew yeah, it was important, an important process <laughs> to do that. And I always say, don't ever let grief be your excuse to hurt yourself. It's not a time to drink. It's not a time to be eating bad food. It's a time to be walking, doing the right things. And fix sleep first. Uh, because if you don't sleep well, and that doesn't mean ambient, but fix sleep first uh, is just critical to be able to manage the emotions that are going to come. 
Well, let's talk more about the dragons that are activated by you know, the societal uh, shutdown and just by the, the fear that a lot of people have now that's maybe driving that 28% depression. One of the dragons you talk about in the book is death. And it feels like all fear is eventually about death, but talk about death as a dragon. So death is actually one of the most common of the dragons. And yeah. it usually rears its head in midlife when um, a parent dies or your friends have parents start to die and you realize this is all there is and you look around and you go, okay, I need to get divorced. I need a Corvette. Um, I need to change my life. So it is the origin of midlife crisis. Um, although once you buy the Corvette, um, you sell it a couple of months later because you don't like the suspension. So, uh, <laughs> been there, done that. That was an Audi, but <laughs> still. But sometimes this dragon is born way early. If you have a parent that gets sick or a sibling that gets sick or, um, or you get sick and you realize you may not have the life that you dreamed of. Tana, for example, and I'm so grateful you interviewed her for her book, uh, got cancer when she was 23 and the death dragon just breathed fire on her. Um, I'm very worried about the pandemic and the death dragon because you have seven-year-olds worried about their death and, yeah. uh, and people are dying. That uh, I was just on the phone yesterday with um, a team member who works for me, whose fiance's dad, who was in his mid fifties, died of COVID, and the agonizing decision for his children to take him off life support uh, was just horrible. Um, you know, the death dragon is breathing fire on those children. Um, but I think it's critical for all of us to deal with death. That death is it's in always a, here, pandemic or not. We're all going to do in, it. In, in, when I was in college, I tell the story in the book. When I was in college, I took a death and dying class, and it was one of the most important classes I've ever taken because what it did was taught me to start with the end in mind. And I ask myself this same question every day since then is when I'm coming up against whatever issue is, well, does it have eternal value? Is it important in the grand scheme of things? And then my friend, Pastor Rick Warren, when he talked about money, he said, you know, money is only something you borrow because as soon as you're dead, it's somebody else's. And so just thinking about death helps you live in the present. Um, now, I'm wanting to push that event off as long as I can, but I realize my behaviors today are encouraging the death dragon or discouraging the death dragon. And as you and I both know, there are very specific things you can do um, to decrease your worry about death 
or there are things you can do to increase it. One of the strategies that I consciously chose to do, um, which pisses off some people, frankly, but it's been really liberating for me. I've studied all kinds of you know, different spiritual traditions around the world. I was one class away from having a minor in religious studies. And I've you know, traveled, I've met with Tibetan lamas and you know, various things. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to believe in uh, reincarnation. Now, I could totally be wrong, and I'm fine with that. But the reason I do it is that it radically reduces the power of the death dragon. <laughs> and that, look, this is all a video game, and I get to play the game again. And here's the thing. If I'm right, great. And if I'm wrong, I won't know it. Either way, I win. right? Because all it is is about reducing my fear of death, which makes me reactive. right? It makes everyone reactive. So I'm like, okay, this is just a rational choice, even though we don't have strong evidence either way. You know, there's people who argue or will argue either way, um, you know, vehemently as if they know. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna roll with the fact that I, I don't have to know, but I'm just gonna choose this as the most functional belief system to reduce my fear, uh, because as far as we know today, everyone is gonna die at some point, even if you're immortal, the universe will collapse in on itself. So since it's inevitable, I just don't want to live fearing it but I'd like to die at a time and by a method of my own choosing. <laughs> it seems like the best way to do it. What do you think of that strategy? Good, bad, weird? No, I think that's a great strategy. I mean, it's the first strategy I have, if you believe in eternal life, that I don't believe we're here by random chance. That just makes no sense to me at all. Um, that yeah. things are random. You know, there's this thing called the second law of physics, which is entropy. Things go from order to disorder. I don't believe my relationship with you or my relationship with Tana is just something that evolved out of random chance billions of years ago. I believe in intelligent design and my life matters. Uh, I think to, to live in a way that, well, your life really doesn't matter. Uh, you just hear by random chance. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but I have a strategy in the book I like a lot, which is yeah, share what you do. Write down what's good about dying. So what are the good things about dying? Um, so one, I may get to see my dad and my grandfather again. Not that thrilled with my grandmother because she was mean. <laughs> when she met Dana, <laughs> she said, oh, you're Danny's next victim. <laughs> and, I, and I said, Grandma, I said, after you're dead, I'm going to talk about you. Uh, <laughs> um, I won't have to get my teeth cleaned again. I don't like that. I don't like someone with a sharp metal object bank, you know, just the sound of it bothers me. I won't have to deal with traffic anymore. I won't have to deal with, you know, I wrote for an hour and then my computer lost it, you know. So I have like a list of the good things about time <laughs> just to, in part to make fun of it, you know, when I'm cremated, I'll have a smoking hot body um, just to play with the idea but, you know, any good business plan starts with the end. It's like, okay, well, if I do what I'm going to do, how, how does it end? So you're making good conscious decisions all the way. I think for our lives, we should go, okay, I'm at the end. Why will I have mattered? 
That that's really powerful. I, you're making me think about my grandfather when he passed. He had a autoimmune kidney condition, and it put him in the hospital. And he thought about it. He said, "Well, if I fight really hard to recover, I'll be doing dialysis twice a week forever, and I might have enough energy to sit on my lounger and watch golf all day." He goes, "I don't want to do that." So I'm going on the wine diet. And he called all the family and said, I'm only drinking wine. Uh, I probably have three or four days and I'm choosing to go because you know, it's time. So hospice came and all of that. And he died surrounded by you know, his family who loved him. He was a hardcore atheist and you know, wrote, wrote under the general chemistry heading for Encyclopedia Britannica, just you know, serious science um, PhD guy. And rejected you know, Christianity, rejected any spiritual anything. And right at the end, maybe a day or two before he passed, he went to my dad and he said, you know, I've been reconsidering all this stuff and I've been thinking about it. And, uh, and my dad's going, is he going to change? Uh, and, and he goes, and I'm more convinced than ever that it's all a bunch of crap. <laughs> but then on the day, on the day that he was dying, he said, you know what, as a scientist, I've never done this before. So I'm really curious about it. I don't know what it's going to be like. Um, but if there really is an afterlife, which I don't think there is, I'll do my best uh, to send you a signal there. <laughs> it was so funny, right? Because how would you ever know, you know, what what the signal was? And um, to this day, it's it's in our family lore. Um, his name was Larry, and the day after he died, there was a big billboard that was up that said, "Where's Larry?" And it was for some advertisement, some company. But I was like, oh, my God, was that it? And of course, we'll never know. <laughs> the idea of becoming curious at the very end versus becoming fearful, he passed in peace because of that. And anytime you can replace fear with curiosity, it seems like such a, such a powerful thing to do. And uh, I, hope that, I hope that I have the courage to go that way whenever it's my time. Do you ever read the book Life After Life? Powerful book. It, it helped me decrease my fear of dying and yes. scientists should be curious any scientist that says i know the truth uh, uh that's not science that's religion and thank you it's it's one of those things in fact i posted yesterday about it it's uh research means re Search. It means to look again. It means to question your assumptions, question your beliefs, and look for the data that says that, well, they might usually be true. They aren't always true because there's more to know. And I mean, that's what you've been doing with your research. You know, like, look again. <laughs> and that's what all great scientists do. And it stems from that curiosity and willingness to be wrong. It, is there a dragon about fear of being wrong? Talk to me about what that does to our brains. Well, that's the judgmental dragon, where you are afraid to be wrong, so you come across as if you know it all. And my dad had that one. Tana has that one. It's like, in fact, I have a gavel I bought her for <laughs> her stocking stuffer last year. I'm like, you have the judgmental dragon. You know, if I sort of ran the world, this is how it should be. <laughs> Um, hey, you guys have the funniest and most interesting relationship. <laughs> you're open about it. She talked a lot about it when I interviewed uh, Tana Amen. By the way, guys, if you're wondering who we're talking about, uh, Tana Amen was just on, I'm uh, talking about her book a few episodes before this. And 
um, yeah, I mean, you guys have all these stories. You're <laughs> you're such a such an amazing couple where you just kind of hold each other accountable. So I, anytime you tell these stories, I'm laughing. So what does she do with a gavel? Like what, what's the point of that? Well, the judgmental yeah. dragon is, and often it's because you've been hurt or because the world yeah. was not fair. You end up taking a very black or white look at, you know, things should be this way or they have to be that way. Um, when we first met, because of my imaging work, I've scanned a thousand convicted felons and over a hundred murderers. I've testified in death penalty cases. And she hates that because she thinks, you know, if you molest a child, you should die. And, and I'm like, it's more complicated than that. Uh, hurt people hurt people and hurt brains hurt other brains. And uh, so she just couldn't manage that. But over time, she's really softened uh, as she's gotten to know our work. And the judgmental dragon, the taming it, is just questioning. Do I really know that the world should be this way? The, the dragon that brings a lot of pain is the shouldn't shaming dragon, where um, yeah. you grew up in a shame-based culture um, You've been humiliated, embarrassed. I grew up Roman Catholic, and my mom was very serious about the whole process as an altar boy almost till I was 19. And, and I realized, of course, there are things you should and shouldn't do. Of course there are. But when you try to use that as a motivator, it's terrible. It doesn't work very well at all. I mean— we were taught you shouldn't do this. And in confession, everybody's confessing to doing that. <laughs> and so um, to tame this, I just want people to replace should with it's my goal to do this or I want to do this. And if it's not your goal yeah. and you don't want to, most people have good goals, you know, want to have a great marriage and be a good dad and run a good organization. Um it just—I want to get some of the shooting out of our society. It—it's a weasel word in game changers. It's one of those things that lets you get out of things. I should do that. It doesn't mean that I am going to do that, right? It just means if I don't do it, which I probably won't, then I'm a bad person. You're like, why would you say it that way? Versus, I want to do it, or I'm going to do it, or any other thing that's actually action oriented. So I, I'm with you there. Yeah, the example I use is I used to go, well, I should go see my dad. Well, as soon as I say that, I don't want to see him uh, because we're all naturally a little bit oppositional. But if I just change it to I want to see my dad or if it's my goals to see my dad, I go see my dad. Um, but loading things up with guilt and shame, um, it makes people miserable. You were, I, I'm pretty sure it, this was from one of your books, but I, I came across research that said up to 85% of people in prison have problems with their brains, like hardware problems and metabolism problems, brain injuries, other things like that. Was that your research or is that something you've come across? I've heard half the population has ADD of one sort or another. In prison? Probably half at least have had a significant brain injury at some point. We're actually going to do a program with the California Department of Corrections. I hired their medical director. He worked for me for many years, and oh, I wow. loved him. Um, but our program got cut 
right after 9-11. It was going to be funded that year, and they had to cut their budget by 15%. Um, I've been very interested. Dostoevsky said, you can tell about the soul of a society, not by how it treats its outstanding citizens, but by how it treats its criminals. And we fail because prison for us. It's one of the most shameful things about the U.S. is the percentage of the population in prison and how we treat them, how we feed them. It, It is unjust on every level. It is. And there's not a large enough outcry. Um, They need to have their brains assessed and rehabilitated. And that's Mm -hmm. not a liberal idea. It's a conservative idea because when they get out, they're less likely to go back and they're more likely to work, take care of their families and pay taxes. So in my mind, it's like, this is not a liberal idea. It's cheaper. It costs 50 grand to basically mistreat someone every year in jail, or you could spend the same amount of money and fix them so they come out and then they're in charge of themselves. And most people are wired to generally be okay. And there's some small percentage who are completely just probably very either damaged or just evil people. And maybe you really do need to keep them in jail and that's okay. But it's tiny and you can still be kind. And that's not a liberal thing at all. It's just money, right? And your dragons are always interacting with the other person's dragons. And so I was, I'd mentioned I was on Dr. Phil yesterday and we were talking about vaping and this one family where the mom had basically, um, because of her should and shaming dragon and her responsible dragon, which is the need to take care of others, created in her son this special spoiled and entitled dragon by oh, doing a big one everything for him and making him completely incompetent at the age of 20. And then the stepdad had the judgmental dragon and the angry dragon, which is also pretty wow. common. And you could just see this Game of Thrones-like war going on in that family. Um, and these dragons can damage your children. Uh And we should not be doing everything for our children. We should be letting kids do as much for themselves as they can because that's where you develop self-confidence. Self-confidence comes from being competent. And so um, having kids work is really important. Yep. And letting them fail sometimes. Not in a way that causes harm, but just, yep, you got to see on that test. You know, versus, you know, rioting because they got to see and, you know, holding a protest at the school. Um, <laughs> it, it feels like the special spoiled entitled dragon has really gotten powerful recently. Um, I, I, uh, my, my daughter went to this, you know, Greek Olympics thing um, that they do. And I was like, all right, why don't we work really hard in events? So, we bought a, a full-size javelin so she could really practice javelin throwing, which is an unusual event. So, like, you got a shot there. But when they went there, instead of competing to see who was the best, they measured the group improvement of 200 kids over time, and then they all clapped for each other. And, and I was kind of horrified because it's like, looks that kid over there, he ran faster than everyone else. Like, he actually did it, right? And one kid ran slowest. And we can say, well, you didn't win, Right. 
but it, it felt like that was just building that kind of a dragon. You think I'm just being an overreactive father or you know, how, how do we teach our kids to not have that? You know, I see it both ways that me having to beat you is probably not what we want to instill in kids. We want to instill cooperation. Like I always wanted to be the best in my classes because I wanted to go to medical school. But but I never wanted to be the best at the expense of someone else. So I ended up being everybody's tutor in college and medical school. It's like, let me bring the group forward. It's testosterone that makes us want to win. It's estrogen that makes us want to do it together. And I don't know. I don't, I maybe have less testosterone, but, um, so I, I haven't told you this, I don't think, but early midway through the pandemic, my favorite programming, my favorite parenting program on the planet, parenting with love and logic, they were going to go out of business because they're basically event-based. And I love them so much that my company became the exclusive distributor for them. And why I love Love and Logic is it teaches parents to make kids responsible for themselves and to pay consequences when the consequences are inexpensive. If you create the special spoiled or entitled dragon in your children because you love them so much, you want to do everything for them, you're basically creating people who are not competent and entitled people are miserable and they make other people miserable. So one of the reasons I love them, Chloe, our 17-year-old, very strong-willed, and she and Tana were locking horns. Chloe's like seven, and they're like fighting over homework. And she, Tana's not listening to me. And so she got this program, and she announces to Chloe, Chloe, I've done second grade. I'm never going to ask you to do your homework again. And Chloe's suspicious. She's like, what do you mean? That doesn't sound right. She's like, look, as long as you're okay with the consequences of you not doing your homework, like you have to stay in for recess and your teacher who you love will be mad at you, or you know, you're a really nice kid if you have to repeat second grade, you'll make new friends. <laughs> Chloe just got furious and you know, ran off and 20 minutes later came back. And her mother never again had to ask her to do her homework. She held the anxiety wow. for her homework. And Chloe's going to graduate with basically a 4.2 grade point average. Just got into the University of Tennessee and LSU and ASU and all sorts of great schools. Because she's responsible. And the helicopter parents, story. not good. You're not helping their brains develop. Now, you want to give them support, but you want to make them responsible yeah. for their lives. So you're going to be responsible way after they're 18. Such a, such a powerful thing. And, and all parents struggle with that. You know, we don't want to see our kids suffer, but if they don't work and they don't have accountability, they, they become spoiled. And, and so I'm, I'm constantly working on that. And the other day, uh, my daughter uh, forgot her lunch. And we tell her, we told her right before, like, hey, grab your lunch. And she just forgot. And so she calls from school, can you bring my lunch? I'm like, no, we're busy. 
sorry, like you can fast today. <laughs> you won't die. <laughs> well, with your she new book, that, totally. <laughs> but she won't forget it again. If you would yeah, have done exactly. that for her, she would not have paid the price and she wouldn't have learned the lesson. And you want them to learn the lessons when the cost is cheap. Yeah. Because if the lesson is later and it involves, you know, jail or getting fired or something, it's pretty good they learned it early. Well, and and that also seems like it turns down some of the dragons as well, because the sense of competence that you get from you know learning how to do things like that, it it does reduce the anxiety, right? So you're like, I've got this is an amazing feeling to have, and that's one that I I oftentimes didn't have. Um, especially when I was, you know, my brain wasn't working when I was younger, I was overweight and I'm like, I'm so tired. I, I don't know if I have enough energy to do this. So there, it's such a complex thing, but I, your model of these 13 dragons, it's very noteworthy. And I think it's, this is a book that's applicable to everyone who listens to the show. And your books usually are partly because we're both interested in the brain and so is the audience, but just your way of, of distilling things that are sometimes hardware and sometimes software and sometimes it's your parents stuff and putting it into a framework like this nice work i just got as a fellow author well done thank you my friend thank you for being a guest on the show for sharing so many just amazing stories and just for the work you've done i mean, it, it's impressive you look past the last 25 years all the books all the work all the brain scans uh, continued pushing on multiple areas like brain injuries. And uh, you are uh, you are a very noteworthy guy. And I'm happy that you're here on Earth, and I'm happy you're planning to stick around for a long time. Wow. Thank you. Um, we have very special gifts if people pre-order the book. I know you know about that. Yeah, so and, and actually, the last one was I got the idea from you. Uh, oh, cool. So if people pre-order the book or order it by March 7th, this all goes away March 7th, that they get a playbook to summarize the big ideas in the book. Um, a magnificent Mind with Medical Hypnosis. I've loved hypnosis for a long time. So I did six special sessions, anxiety, sleep, pain, weight, smoking, and peak performance. Uh, they also get a for only people who pre-order the book, a special two-hour event with me. I'm going to answer their questions. And this oh, cool. is the idea I got from you. Uh, a free coupon for a bottle of my favorite supplement. It's called Happy Saffron. That has got saffron, zinc, and curcumin. There are 21 randomized controlled trials show saffron supports mood in the same effectiveness as Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, good antidepressants um, yes because i saw I you gave away of... something and i'm like well i should do that and it's not inexpensive yeah. to do but i want people to have this information and uh, so thank you for the idea so your brain is always listening.com and part of the job of an author, I've realized, and I feel like I, I haven't done what I could have done here, it's to teach your work. I mean, you're doing it right now on the show. But sitting down for two hours with people read the book and answering questions for them, um, I did a, a thirty or a two-week challenge, 30,000 people, and there's more enrolling at fastestway.com. And the idea is for all of my books, I've just committed for myself, I'm going to teach each of these books in like a college-level course where I go, and why is it this way? You know, answer the questions. Because... 
if you spend thousands of hours writing a book and you don't help people learn it, not everyone learns from reading, right? So I'm, I've just committed to saying if, if it was worth writing a book about, it's worth teaching in every way that people can absorb it. So that's why I'm spending this year on is, is teaching the books. And so doing your two hour Q and a, it's a big deal. I'll see you on it. Give me the URL for your, your, uh, your stuff again. I think everyone's going to want to hear that. We'll put in the show notes too. Your brain is always listening.com. All right. Your brain is always listening.com guys go there. Bunch of free stuff. You're probably going to order Daniel's book. I expect you to, if you haven't ordered fast this way, order it at the same time. And that way they'll be paired up on Amazon. So people know if you like the kind of stuff you're on Bulletproof radio that you also like Dr. Amon's work. And if you've never read any of his books, he's been on, I think four or five times, you really owe it to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> to pick up and just it, understand from the brain perspective, this is the guy. So thanks again, Dr. Raymond. Thanks, Dave. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.